Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. Well, good evening. Welcome to Masterclass Theology. I am Big Rev. And I am Professor D. We have the honor of starting the book of Colossians tonight. Colossians is a pivotal work of Paul, and we've been building all summer. We've been in Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians, and we even took a week and looked at the the, the letter to Philemon. And tonight, I, I I don't know about you, Professor D, but I've been looking forward to Colossians one. Yeah, so have I. Uh, you know, let's talk about this particular class. This particular class came out of a series that our church was doing at the time. Uh, it was called Staying Rooted, and it was off of the Book of Colossians. So in a, in a, in a weird word, way, uh, no, it was called Rooted, and then your class was called Staying Rooted afterwards. Mm. It was launched from the book of Colossians. So there's wow. a sense that this book kind of ties even to the, to the origins of what is masterclass theology. Yeah, we, then we gave it the, per, or I gave it the pretentious name of masterclass theology later, though it's unintentional pretension, I guess. But, but yeah, we were staying rooted for a while, and yeah, so we're... We're going to start Colossians tonight. And Colossians 1, it, it's, it's a word uh, that is used only in theological circles, but it is Christology. And mm-hmm. we had a Christological moment back in Philippians 2, where, you know, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Okay, so that's, that's a very big moment in terms of, of, of Christ or uh, in terms of, of, of kind of a theology centered around Jesus there. And so... We're going to get to a point tonight where we're going to have some high Christology. It's going to be just Paul is very intentional about what he's going to say. And what he's going to say in chapter one is going to be very, very unique. It's, it's not going to be a surprise, but it's, it's, it's definitely going to be something that Colossians 1 is going to be famous for. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm looking forward to get going. So let's just get going. Let's pray. God, thank you for this evening. Thank you for, uh, I thank you, Lord, for, for, for my friend, Professor D, and, and the, the wisdom he brings and for the conversation we get to have. And we're thankful, God, for your word and for how it teaches us and how it guides us. And I just pray tonight, Lord, that would be the case, that you would direct us through your word and that we would understand what we need to understand. And I'm so thankful for all the listeners out there in podcast land. And we just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So let's just uh, get going here. I'll we'll read verses one to two. We'll kind of introduce, we like to introduce these uh, whatever new book we, 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 we start. And uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So Professor D, give us our introduction here. So what do we need to know about the book of Colossians? Or do, do verses one and two give us any clues? What's going on? Oh, I'm glad you asked, Joe. Uh, yeah, verses one and two give us quite a bit of clues. First of all, as always, Paul identifies himself as the writer. Now, he mentions Timothy, but we believe just that Timothy's with him. Maybe it, it, he's serving as the scriber, but that, that's about the extent of it. It's not that, that Timothy's the co-author. We believe this to have been written at around 60 or 62 AD during the Roman arrest. And this is also the same time where he writes the other letters of Ephesians, uh, Philippians, uh, Philemon, why do I feel like I'm missing one? And Colossians, yeah. 
So he writes all these letters during that time. And some of the clues that we have within the text are the fact that he, he will mention that he's in prison later in the book. He, he mentions Tychicus, who delivers the letters, again, and, and he's mentioned here and in Ephesians. He mentions Onesimus and, and Aristarchus as prominent um, Colossians, which were also mentioned in the book of Philemon. And because of the fact that we're able to easily date Philemon, we, we can include, I, I believe, um, Colossians here as well. Did I miss anything at this point? So he wrote it from Rome, and he was writing it to the Church of Colossae. I think we got everything, right? Yeah, so in terms of, 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 of Colossae, wh whereabout in the world is that? We look in Asia Minor, kind of modern-day Turkey. Is it close to Greece? It's not very far from one of its sister cities that is probably better known because of the seven letters to the seven churches is Laodicea. Mm. So it's not too far from Laodicea. In fact, Laodicea gets mentioned in this letter as well, as this is intended to be a letter that's to be shared amongst the churches. Interestingly enough, a, a letter to Laodicea is mentioned, but there is no, it doesn't exist. Mm. I just know on the commentaries on my bookshelf that a lot of them have Colossians and Philemon in the same commentary. Yes. Like they'll do this, the, the, the commentary writer will, will do a big one on Colossians and tech Philemon at the end. So yeah, they link them together a lot. I, I and I think that's a smart move. I think it's a smart play. All right. Well, yeah, it's good. I like how he says I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And there's, that's a God, a God sovereignty moment. It's, it's it, we don't see Paul necessarily having to justify his existence as an apostle, but it's it kind of goes back to maybe his resume in Philippians three, like okay, the things I could have confidence in, but no, I'm here, and it's because God wants me here, and God wants me writing this letter to you on purpose. Yeah, and yeah, this is good. Grace, grace and peace to you. A typical Paul greeting. All right, great. Thanks, Professor D. Good, good opening there. We continue now three to eight, and we're going to read this in a chunk, and then we'll kind of go back and, and we'll, we'll, we'll ask certain questions on certain verses. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world as it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does also among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us the love, your love in the spirit. Well, for those of you who are just getting your taste of, of Paul, Paul is the master of the big sentence. And uh, he just keeps going and going and going and going. And my, my, my wife is used to take German classes. And she says that is like high German, like really, really, really intelligent German has big sentences too. And so, yeah, so Paul is, he's flexing the Greek here. So let's now pick this up here, three to eight. We're going to unpack this. So in verses three to four, Professor D, why was Paul thankful for them? Well, Paul was grateful for them because their faith in Jesus was very evident in their love towards one another is what he says. Mm. Yeah, it's just something about their faith really did, did right by Paul. And he, he wanted to recognize that. 
And, and he, he kind of goes on this talk about the gospel. And so he starts in verse five about the gospel brings hope. And if we think about it theologically, what hope does the gospel bring us? The gospel message. Well, the hope that, that the gospel brings is that there is a new, there, there is a better life that God promises to those who place their trust in Jesus for salvation. Paul says that because they were convinced of the reality of the resurrected Jesus and, and of his promises, that 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 faith is that that faith is what 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 motivated them to love one another. Yeah, I, I think the gospel message sets us apart as Christians, but the rest of the world is we have hope in certain categories that the rest of the world doesn't seem to have. And so we can have certain hope of forgiveness. And I know the, the New Testament speaks of, you know, the blood of Christ reconciling us. And so mm -hmm. we can be reconciled with, with God or even reconciled with the people that we ourselves have wronged. Yeah. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a great hope there of peace. And, you know, that's one of the, the tail ends of, of the last book we were in, in Philippians and the peace that passes all understanding. It's going to guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. And we get to have these things. And, and this is something that the gospel message brings. And especially when we submit to that message and the bad news that, that, that I'm a sinner and the good news that he's an even greater savior to kind of quote John Newton, the, the writer of, of Amazing Grace, you know, a bunch of, of decades ago. But yeah, the, the gospel brings hope and Paul brings it up here. And then in verse six, Professor D, Paul describes the work of the gospel with images. And how, how does he do it here? Well, he talks about a, a crop yielding fruit, lives being, and by this he means about, he's talking about lives that are being transformed, uh, it was the fruit of the gospel, you know, the, the fact that, that it led to life transformation. If you have truly had an encounter with God's grace, there can't help but be some sort of change in your life. Amen. So he's got, yeah, he's got the fruit and increasing. Yeah, that's, that's, it's bearing fruit. That's, that's good to know. It's, it's a good message there. And then in verses seven to eight, uh, he brings up Epaphras and what's going on with Epaphras? Well, there's a couple of things uh, that are brought up about uh, uh, Epaphras. First, it seems that he may have been the guy that, that probably got the whole ball rolling in, in Colossae. Um, we're not a hundred percent sure, but it seems to be that way. Cause he's talking about how, you know, he, he was the guy that, that shared the gospel there. And secondly, he was ministering to Paul and telling, and while he was over there ministering to Paul and helping Paul out on behalf of the Colossians, not unlike Epaphroditus from the Philippian church, you know, he's also telling them the great news about, again, what it is to bear fruit, the lives being changed as a result of the gospel there. Uh, another key thing here is that Paul brings up that, you know, in, in this conversation is that is that it's really the spirit who gives them the power to love. Mm. Amen. All right. So this opening section here, he's, he's thanking God for them. He's bringing up the gospel. He's even linking um, uh, someone that they would know, the Epaphras. Mm -hmm. That was just a, a great opening, kind of just, you know, connecting with them and, and, and being able to, um, just, just kind of get, get his foot open in the door because he's, he's now going to begin some, um, soon to begin some deeper theologies. He just kind of just ingratiates himself to them. 9 to 14, we continue. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you 
asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Wow. So let's start in verse 9, Professor D. With what does Paul pray that they are filled? He prays that they, that they, are, that they be filled with knowledge of God's will so that they can have wisdom and understanding. And we all need to learn what God wants. And, and we also need to know how to apply. That's where wisdom comes in, you know, how to live it out. Yeah, so it looks like back in verse 6, it's like the idea of, you, since speaking of the gospel, that you heard the gospel, and then you understood it, and you understood it by means of God's grace, and, and also by means of truth. So you're not just looking in nebulous ways. You're, you're understanding the right things. And I like what you pointed out here, that they need to be filled with the knowledge of these right things. And yeah. the best possible thing is how to please God. Yeah. Well, you got to know what God wants. Exactly. So there are so many of us that live. Some of us are people pleasers. We always want to please everybody in our life. We don't want to we don't want to ruffle any feathers. And we just we have this general fear of other people's opinion of us, whatever it is. But no, Paul's saying, no, 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 no. That, that may be existing in your life somewhere, but we need to know what pleases God. We need to know the yeah. right things to know. And in order to give glory to God and to know how to live this life. and so then that transitions to their walk. He, he, in, in verse 10, he speaks of their walk, and then he speaks of branches. Uh, so what's going on in verse 10, Professor D? All right, well, one of the things is that we always understand is that walk has to do with the way you conduct yourself, with how you live. So he prays that they live lives that, that honor God. To bear fruit is essentially to become like Jesus. Mm -hmm. That's what it really ultimately comes down to. When, when you get down to it, to that, like becoming like Jesus, living like he did and exhibiting his characteristics, because that's what the fruit of the spirit are. They're the characteristics that Jesus exhibited. And this can only happen when we're connected to God through his spirit and by being plugged into his word and, and, and being in prayer. And, and, and that's how we live lives that, that can honor God. It, it's, it's the only way. Yeah. When we look, we looked at in our time in Galatians, we, we, I believe we asked the question and we looked at the fruits of the spirit, what fruit is hanging off the branches of the tree that is your life? And we see some branches here as well, where Paul's expecting these Colossian Christians to be actually bearing fruit. And there should be fruit hanging off those branches. And that fruit comes with good work and, and also with their knowledge. And that, that's great. Mm -hmm. So this is a great thing. That might be something you might even pray for yourself. Have you ever prayed for yourself? And I know you do that, oh, listen or whenever you're confessing your sins, but to be able to ask God to grow good fruit in you and to use your works for his glory. And that, that'd be a, a great application here. But we transition out of verse 11 and Paul is, he's talking about them being strengthened, but it looks like he's being, he's saying there's a goal to their being strengthened. Make, what would be that goal? Well, for all endurance and patience, well, yeah, what, what he wants is for, for all endurance and patience, so that they, they can have joy. And that's what he wants them, so that they can have joy with this. It's not just about, 
toughing it out and, and bearing, you know, and, and gritty, you know, just kind of toughing through. He wants them to have joy throughout this. Uh, he'll build more on this towards the end of the chapter, but we've kind of been, you know, Philippians rejoice in the Lord always. And he's writing that in a time when he's in prison himself. You know, and there's something about rejoicing in the midst of all these things. James writes something along the same lines, you know, consider it pure joy. And I'm like, what? Yes, we have to rejoice even as we're enduring things. Right. And this chapter is known for its heavy theology, but he begins the heavy theology in 12, 13 and 14. He has something to say about about, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, what the Father is doing here in 12 mm -hmm. and 13, and then kind of how the father accomplishes something in verse 14. So Mick, as, as, as a theologian extraordinaire here, would you give us what the father's doing in, in verse 12? And then would you go to 13 and then, and then complete 14 is help us understand what is Paul communicating about what God the father is, is going to be doing? Well, first of all, one of the things is that God the father, and you, and you know, oftentimes when we, when we say use God by, by himself, we generally are referring to God the Father, especially in the New Testament. So God ha has made us worthy of salvation and all good works uh, and all, all the good that goes along with it. I'm sorry. Um, he took us out of the kingdom. And, and, and by, by kingdom, I mean by or the dominion kingdom, whatever translation you use. And what he means is he took us out of the rule of darkness. So what is darkness? Darkness is a, is a reference to, to sin and death and, and basically Satan. And he moved us from that kingdom from that rule from that dominion he moves us over to the new kingdom dominion rule of, of of his son jesus and and god also gives us this freedom because that's what what, what it is to be under jesus's rule is a freedom and he also forgives us our sins i mean i like the way jesus put it when when, when he was walking on earth and he said you know take my yoke because my yoke is easier my kingdom is easier than the enemy's kingdom yeah, it looks like Mick. He, 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 we're in darkness, and God makes it possible that we're no longer in that darkness, and now we get to be in the light, and we get to be a part of His family with an inheritance. He says here, yeah. and and Mick, he uses a, a theological word in verse fourteen. Uh, we we kind of understand forgiveness, but but redemption. Uh, what what's going on with the word redemption there? Well, redemption has to do with the fact that he had to pay for us, that he had to buy us. Hmm. You know, he had to pay, you know, sin could not have been left, um, you know, that usually uh, goes with it, uh, unatoned, you know. We, there, it has to be paid for. Right. You know, something has to right the scales. And this is where redemption comes into, into play. And again, he, he talks about it. Um, is it in this particular verse or... Let me double check this real quick. Before. It is in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, so he's going to build on that in the next section. But yeah, because of him, because of the Father, you know, using Jesus this way, this is what we have now. Right. Yeah, it's almost as if like the only way for us to be out of the kingdom of darkness and into his light is our sins have to be dealt with. Yeah. And, and we don't have the power to deal with them. And so God buys us and by and yeah. he pay, he pays whatever penalty i mean we don't use the word redemption a lot but there might be some of our listeners who are very savvy shoppers and they redeem mm. coupons i mean yeah. so you so you understand that i you, you put a coupon on there and you redeem the value of that and you then it, it becomes something on your shopping list and so that's what god so god in order to forgive god had to deal with the sin 
and yeah. God had to redeem us from this slavery, as it were. Yes. It's also kind of a slavery image. You redeem someone from slavery. And that's the idea. We were slaves in darkness. That's not the image Paul exactly uses here, but he, but he has elsewhere. This is almost like make, maybe thinking of darkness and light. Not only does Jesus go there in John chapter 3, but this is like John, the Apostle John. This is like a first John kind of thing. Yeah. Where real simple theology of John, but he just stays on target with darkness yeah. and darkness and light, and and it just this is almost like a, a Paul's Apostle John moment here. It's just yes. like, all right, so that was great, and so that's twelve, thirteen, and fourteen. So now uh, we're we're coming to fifteen to twenty, and what we're gonna do with fifteen to twenty is this is some of the 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 most pivotal Christology. That's just speaking of Jesus, that God the Son, this is the maybe the section in the New Testament of just hammering the things that it's hammering. And so we're going to take this a verse at a time. I'll read it all 15 to 20, and mm -hmm. then we're going to go back and we're just going to look at this and we're going to just unpack this, um, each verse, 15, 16, 17. Okay, so we, we, we don't want to miss anything here. So 15 to 20, he is speaking of and in the context, in the kingdom of his beloved son, he was speaking of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Wow. Let that sink in, O listener. So let's start with verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What in the world's going on there? Yeah, this is a big one here. All right, so Jesus is exactly God, like God the Father is God. Whereas God the Father, and for that matter, the Holy Spirit, remain as bodily spirits, Jesus actually takes on physical human, a physical human body. Right. And, and like it says in Philippians 2.6, you know, that, that Jesus took the form of man. In other words, he became a man. You know, that's the only real difference between him and, and, and the Father and the Holy Spirit. The, the point of Jesus being the image of God here is that he, and Jesus, is God too. In, in saying that Jesus was the firstborn of all creation, what Paul is saying is not that Jesus was created. He just finished saying that Jesus was God. So he's not, he's obviously not saying that, but he's saying that Jesus is, is superior, preeminent, you know, over Ever, over and above all of creation uh, think think of the concept of, of, a, of a first lady in the u.s it doesn't mean that she's the first woman or she's the woman who's been around the longest but but it means that she's the highest ranking woman in the land so to speak by virtue of being the president's wife right and, and this would be for paul being 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 a jew uh for your jewish he's in fact jew of jews hebrew of hebrews a pharisee of pharisee like this, the firstborn son was, there, there comes a point when the firstborn son essentially is considered like the father. And yeah. so it's like the, the preeminence, the, 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 the firstborn is overall and is the one who 
is now going to be the provider one day. It's like Paul is making a qualifying statement, not a literal statement mm-hmm. that like the rest of creation who is created. So, and that is actually a massive thing. Yeah. Can, and I think that's a great way that you put it. He's making a qualifying statement. And I think that, that, that right there, I wish I said that. Well, it's okay. I mean, you, you said some brilliant things there because this separates us from Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. This separates us from other religions who are looking at Jesus and he's, he can only be a man like you and me. And right. so, and they look at a verse like this and say, see, he was the first one that was made. And so there are some people, as we get to the degree that all things are going to be made by him and for him, there are some people that believe that God made Jesus first and then Jesus then made everything else. And yeah. so they take this, and I think that's classic Jehovah's Witness theology. That is yes. the idea of, of, so Jesus can't be God. So what is he? Well, he's the greatest possible not God, maybe. That's the way you'd put it. And so, yes. So it's kind of like God is invisible. We all get it. God was very clear in the Ten Commandments. Don't you make any graven images of me. God is not about to be imaged. And so Jesus now makes it possible for us to see God. Yeah. And so that's it. He's now, it's now God can finally take form in a way that's appropriate. That's not going to um, cross commandment number one in, in, yes. in the Ten Commandments. So he is now the word made flesh. He's not someone making an image of God. It's God becoming flesh. And so he is, he is now that image of an invisible yes. God. All right. So verse 16, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. What's that teach us, Mick? Well, Paul continues by making it clear that we understand that Jesus is God creator. And I think that that's kind of like first and foremost. So he made by visible and visible and invisible, he made both the spiritual realm and the physical universe. And he talks about, um, let me get the ending of that verse real quick. By him and for him. Yeah, everything was made by him and for him. That that means that everything is for him. You know, everything serves him. We we struggled with this back in Philippians 2. We we talked about how God emptied himself to become a man. And what what we discussed was, was this literally talking about the Jesus that showed up in a manger and that died on a cross or was this talking about, at a more theological level, God the Son, like the second member of the Trinity, emptying himself to become a man? And mm-hmm. so now Jesus being fully God, we're not questioning that. Yeah. But I wonder here, Mick, uh, maybe the casual reader will look at this and go, no, wait a minute. We all know Jesus is God. We all know Jesus was a man, but he's also a historical figure and that he had a certain birth, whatever that birth date was, and he had a certain day of his crucifixion and a certain day he resurrected and then a certain day he ascended. How could Jesus, as in the Jesus we read in the Gospels, be that person back in Genesis 1? Mm -hmm. And so is this, Mick, I'll ask it in a question. Do you think this is talking about Jesus per se, or is this yet again God the Son, who is Jesus in, in the flesh, is, is what, what is this theologically communicating to us? This is God the Son, who is Jesus in the flesh. Hmm. I believe that's what, it, what it's communicating. He's always been God. That was the plan all along. So he knew he was going to be Jesus all along. He knew he was going to be the man Jesus. He right. knew he was, going to take, he was going to become that man at some point in, in time. 
Right. In the beginning was the word and the word mm-hmm. was with God. So like the word's always been there to yeah. use John's imagery. And then the word would become flesh yes. as we know him as Jesus. But the, 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 that the in the beginning was the word that, that God, the father, God, the son, very well. And for that matter, God, the Holy Spirit, that we're not speaking of God, the Holy Spirit. Mm. But but yes. So that would mean that if we take that at face value, that. It looks like it's not God the Father doing the creating. If Paul is, is, is saying, okay, this is God the Son, all things are being made by him and now for and now for him. So what does that tell us? For him, maybe God, be, and I think this is where Philippians kind of fits really great here because Jesus doing what he did, God the Father put everything under Jesus. Mm. Even thrones and dominions and I mean, even like the the... Yeah, those are the angelic spiritual rankings that we talked about in in Ephesians. Right. And and, I mean, and some of these people are going to be, Paul's going to use these words to speak of of, of demons at some point. Yes. Especially like in the the, the Ephesians 6, the armor of God, principalities. I mean, it's like the the very people that are one day going to reject him and that are going to be his his, his spiritual opponents, as in the Satan and his minions. Mm -hmm. It's like even they were created. Yes. And so for him, by him, this I is, mean, I think I like that part for him. And look, when you think about the book of Job, Satan is right there in the throne room of God, in the court of God. And, and he's, he's basically just a lackey. Mm. He's just a lackey. He's a servant of God, an unhappy one, an evil one, but ultimately he's a servant of God. He can't help but serve God at the end. And so we're not surprised when we, when we read the gospels that yes, it's God, you know, we understand is God the Father is, and Jesus is God as God the Son is living in obedience to God the Father, and then God the Holy Spirit working through Jesus. And we know that because when Jesus did a miracle and people questioned it, Jesus linked that to, to now blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So who's yeah. that word? Okay. But we're not surprised then that Jesus occasionally in the Gospels shows creative work healing mm-hmm. restoring work mm-hmm. mastery over winds and waves hey and- let's talk about the feeding of the five thousand. i mean you're talking about creating on the fly seriously i mean this is so we're not surprised by that when when when, when we see jesus uh, able to do uh you know able to do you know key things and so yeah th- i mean this is th- this is big so uh, he is all things are created by him and for him, I love that. This is this is this is putting him in the place he is in, and this is you know God God the Son, who is is, is creating, and this this is wonderful. This is great great theology. Yeah. And now verse seventeen, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I mean, right there, I, I like the way the NLT puts it. The NLT translates it this way: He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. That's just putting it in plain, good old modern English. If the firstborn, first thing uh, of verse 15 had, was any confusion to, to the reader or listener, here Paul makes sure that, that, that we get it clear, that we get it right. Jesus was before anything existed, again, God, and it's his power, the power of Jesus, think about that, that holds reality together. Every atom, every molecule, everything together and the whole idea of even holding things together is also a synonymous concept with reconciliation which is bringing things together yeah i mean you could 
Yeah, it almost, this is such high Christology. We almost wonder if, where does the Jesus of the Gospels ever fully get to this point? And I wonder if at the very end of Matthew, where he, he's now, he's resurrected, he's about to ascend, and he says, all authority in heaven and earth have now been given to me. I wonder if that was finally the moment where Jesus was, dare I say, uh, no longer emptied of himself, of God the Son. I mean, he's like, everything is at his feet. It's, I'm not saying Jesus never was. I'm not saying he transitioned or anything like that. But I just wonder, because he limited, Philippians 2 tells us he was emptied. He was limited in taking the form of the flesh. Like, how could God get hungry? Well, you know, when God took human form, he got hungry. You mm -hmm. know, God had to use the bathroom. Jesus had, you know, he, he lived as a human being. Okay, so, and then at the very end, as he's, as he's resurrected in this eternal state that he's going to be in, now all authority is. So I wonder if we're seeing a flavor of that here, Mick. Where I think so. And I, and I think one of the things to bear in mind is that the epistles were written, most of them were written before the gospels were written, before they were penned. So and mind you, they're all in agreement, but this is the teaching of the stuff that when people read the gospels, okay, now I understand it better kind of thing. So, yeah. And he is, well, also verse 17 almost sounds like, I mean, if we want to play with that a bit, it, it would mean that as the soldiers were hammering nails into his flesh on the cross, you could take a verse like this and say, he kept their heart beating. He's keeping all things held together, even mm -hmm. in his dire moment. I mean, I realize that might be a kind of a, a, a poetic stretch to describe it that way. But if, if all things are held together through him, I mean, that is... The, you, you, you could take this scientifically. I mean, this is here's the thing. Jesus's body may have died, but he did not die. Mm. His soul, his spirit, his mind does not die. And especially as God, he, he still manages to have that concentration to keep it all together. So verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. What's that yeah, so because Jesus is God, and again, Paul just keeps hammering this. He is the head of the capital C church. Again, as God, he is the starting point of creation. He is first in every sense of what first can mean. You know, he's before it all, and he's also preeminent over everything. He, he's also the first of the resurrected new breed of man. Mm. Jesus is going to be the first of that new breed of man. And as I, as I, I like, often like to say, he is the first 2.0 man. There's going to be a 2.0 version of, of Joel and Mick and every believer one day. And it all began because of Jesus 2.0. It's like, it's like the, the traditional Easter hymn or Resurrection Sunday hymn, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Yes, because I know, no, 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 oh, oh, I, I'll see the future kind of thing. I think it's like this, this life I can have because he lives. And now that he lives, we now know that that death, that sin and death are no longer the final chapters of our books. Amen. That because he's the firstborn. And so now the rest of us are, you know, Paul's, he calls us co-heirs, calls us brothers. Okay. Mm -hmm. So now as little brothers and sisters, we are also going to be resurrected and so he and now we're following him yeah and he's the first one where that's a full and final thing now others have been resurrected but like a lazarus but we assume they died again otherwise he'd be walking around right now talking about it. so we assume he died a second time 
But Jesus, no. And he's the first of that category. And so now that gets to be in Christ, our category. And that's just a huge statement Paul makes there in, yeah. verse, in, in verse 18. And again, another qualifying statement there. He might be preeminent. Yeah. In verse 19, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What a beautiful sentence there. So what does that teach us? Well, I'm, I'm going, I'm going to go straight to reading two portions of scripture that I think summarizes very well. First of them uh, that I'm going to share is, is Hebrews 1, 3. The sun radiates God's own glory and mm. expresses the very character of God. And once again, he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. And, and for a second passage of scripture, and there's more, but I'm just going to keep it down pretty much to these two. Jesus's response to poor Philip when, when he asked him to, hey, Jesus, uh, come on, you know, can't you hook us up and show us who the father is in John chapter 14? And Jesus asks him, he says, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. So yeah. why are you asking yeah. that stupid yeah. question, right? Uh, he, he, Jesus is nicer than that, but he goes, so why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't right. you believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my father who lives in me does his work through me just believe that i am in the father and the father is in me or at least believe because of the work you have seen me do in other words of the immortal bard stanley enough said i mean imagine if you were to read this chapter of colossians and then go back and read a gospel mm -hmm. and to see if if this is if since this is all true that all the fullness of god was in jesus so now when the pharisees begin to question him who are you that can forgive sins? Well, he's the very fullness of God, pleased to dwell right there. Yep. How could you resurrect somebody? Well, he's the fullness of God. I mean, now it's, it's this in the prophetic name, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, mm. God with us. Amen. I mean, this right here, if you were to reverse engineer Jesus, you would start with Colossians 1, and then you go back and read the Gospels with that right there. It's like it's almost like a prequel, even though it, 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 it kind of occurs you know, in terms of chronology a little bit later, but yeah, now verse 20, now, now, now the subject of verse 20, because at verse 19 ends, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and so God's going to be the God, the Father being the actor here, so, and through him, so now God, the Father, through God, the Son, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, so what does, what does God the Father accomplish through God the Son, Jesus? Well, what Paul's essentially saying here is that God the Father used God the Son, Jesus, to help bring back together, to reunite everything that was lost to sin through Jesus becoming a man and offering himself as the very payment for that sin. Not only is he the, the, the Lamb of God, he's also that high priest. Right. And that's a key thing because he's not a martyr. He's a sacrifice. Yeah. And he offered himself. He did, he did, a, martyr is, a martyr has his life taken from him. No, no. A sacrifice freely gives. Yeah. And so here he is. And I, I, I love that God. It's, it's almost like the great problem of Genesis 3 where the fall happens and Adam and Eve who enjoy the perfect presence with God. And now they're kicked out. And they're gone. So this now fully and finally rectifies that. Where mm -hmm. reconciliation gets to happen. So God has now made a way to bring Adam and Eve's distant children 
by faith and through grace to mm -hmm. back to him. So now there's reconciliation, yes. but that only occurs with the sacrifice of Jesus. Paul yes. is very clear here. This is a very John 14, 6 kind of moment. Yes. And where you can't come to the Father except through me. And Jesus didn't unpack it there and talk about the death he was going to die. But Paul does here through yes. that very blood Jesus shed. So when we have our baptisms and we ask the baptism questions, and the first one is, are you a sinner? The second one is, do you trust Jesus alone for your salvation? Is your salvation based upon him? This is what we're talking about. Are you, though you are a sinner, are you reconciled to a holy God? And, and, and how are you reconciled? Well, it seems that Professor D, to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. Yeah. That's huge. That, that, is, that is pivotal, foundational, gospel-centered theology right there. Nope. You must understand that. And if you can't understand that, you don't understand what, what our faith is. Because otherwise, you are out of the Garden of Eden, and you're never reconciled back to him. If you think you can reconcile yourself, you're wrong. You, you, can't, you cannot possibly earn your way back uh, because you can't deal with your sin the way God dealt with your sin. That makes sense, Professor D. Makes perfect sense. All right. Well, what a, what a section here, fifteen to twenty. This is. It doesn't get any better than this in, ter in terms no. of the in terms of Christology. It's. I don't think you can beat this section. This this is the greatest. All right, yeah. twenty one to twenty three. Here we go. And you, he's now speaking back to the Philippians. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh. By his death, he's speaking of Jesus again, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So he, it looks like, Professor D, we've got in verse 21 some bad news. In verse 22, some good news, and then verse 23. So would you would you take verse 21 for us and give us the bad news? All right, so the bad news is that we were God's enemy, separated from him because of our sin. The we were dead of Ephesians 2.1, mm. that, that, that we like to refer to, that's what's going on here. Okay. So and hostile, alienated. You name it. Enemies of God. It's almost like uh, the, the, the idea of the theological concept of to total depravity yeah. we have here if, if if the if the human person is no, now, it's if, not almost it is yeah it is if the it's human person is, if, if we are an inside and an outside then the the, the hostile in mind or well, that encapsulates my inside and doing evil deeds well that describes my outside so all of me is now depraved and the enemy and alienated and hostile towards god which just makes grace all the more amazing that God would yeah. would care for me when I'm his enemy and completely, I mean, you, you name a movie where the general dies for the enemy, not maybe to the enemy, but for yeah. the, enemy. Oh my goodness. Wow. This is probably where I was going to end tonight, but I just, I gave you the, 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 the little spoiler alert there. All right. Now what's the good news of verse 22? Well, the good news is that Jesus paid for our sins through his death on the cross. Hmm. Okay, he did this as a man through his death on a cross. He reconciled us to the creator. He, he wiped our slate clean before him, sparing us the very wrath of God that we all right, 
rightly deserved. Yeah, and it almost looks like he's got this end times goal here of mm-hmm. of taking the, the, this dirty, stained, broken, messy me, and now making it possible for me to be reconciled. And what's he say? What's it say here to to present me holy and blameless? So it's almost like yeah. he's going to be doing this work in me. Yeah, he's wiping and, that slate clean. Yeah, yeah. And that, now I'm going to be presented holy. So now this is the basis of the, the Ephesians five twenty five. Husbands mm-hmm. love your wives as Christ loved the church and, and gave himself up for her. Now to present her as as as, as to present this church as this holy washed uh, washed you know bride of his. And so here he is with you and me. To now he's going to present me before God the Father as holy, blameless, and above reproach. And that blows my mind. Because I look back at my past and my struggles, and I'm sure you can as well. And that's what you, so this is like, oh, I'm saved. I said a prayer. No, Jesus is at work in you. And, and specifically in this case with the doctrine of progressive sanctification, it's the Holy Spirit making you less like you and more like Jesus. But that looks like there's a goal here to yeah. be presented to God. I mean, that's, that's really cool. It, it really is. It really is. And so we have, we have the bad news of verse 21. The good news of verse 22 and what in the world does verse 23 give us think what verse 23 is telling us is that people who have really who have truly experienced god's grace they they can't help but to exhibit those characteristics that are the fruit of the spirit love for one another and it, it's like what, what james also wrote in his letter to you know this the faith of a saved person is going to show in how that person lives and what that person does he, he's also saying that, that this isn't easy, and hence this is why he's praying for them to have endurance earlier on. We, we need to be intentional. We need to, um, the, the big word that he keeps using is stand firm. But if, but if you're convinced about the reality of Jesus, both of him as a resurrected man and, if, and of him being God, you're going to find the power in God to power through these situations. Right. I mean, and at face value, the verse seems to say that you're only gonna, you're only saved if you if you behave. And the moment you stop behaving, the moment you cease to be stable, the moment you shift here and there, as Paul, then then you're out. And that doesn't give us much hope at all because I don't no. know about you, but that's gonna be me at some point. But that doesn't seem to make sense in terms in the idea of of verse twenty one because I don't see the enemy of God who's completely hostile to God ever in his own power, ever choosing to get out of the Joel path and onto the Jesus path. Yeah. I don't see that ever happen. So now that I'm on the Jesus path and I had no means to get onto that path, I don't think I have the means to get off that path. Yeah. If, 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 if verse 21 is, is, since that is true. So that means Paul must be saying something different here that I, I right. like when you said that how, if, if once you're on Jesus team, it's going to show up. Yeah, and, it's going to show up. Again, if you really have experienced God's grace, and it's not to say that you're never going to have a season. I had a season. Mm. But the interesting thing is that because God's word is true, he pulled me out of my funk. And if if I have little trip-ups here and there, he's going to continuously pull me out of this funk because I really belong to him, and he's going to be true to his word. And that's really all it comes down to. It comes down to his word it depends completely on God's faithfulness. Mm. My faithfulness is second fiddle to God's faithfulness. Right. If God's not faithful, my faithfulness doesn't 
doesn't amount to, to a hill of beans, you know? It's like a first job one nine. If we confess our sins, he yeah. it's his faithfulness we're depending upon. Yeah. Not my faithfulness. And so I'm his faithful and justice. Right. Yeah. I'm confessing my own unfaithfulness to God. Yeah. And, and as I confess my unfaithfulness, I'm resting on his faithfulness. And I mean, I like how you said that you had a bad season. Well, you know what? Romans seven exists. Paul had a bad season. Yeah. It's like, even Paul did things he shouldn't be doing and what he wants to do. He's not doing. And yeah, the, the body of sin working in his flesh. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. Uh, that's, so we got to bring it home here. 24. And I appreciate you all slogging with us tonight through some pivotal theology, 24 to 29, a big chunk here. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints to them. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Amen. Yeah. So in verse 24, uh, let's, let's just kind of unpack this as slowly here as we can. How did Paul view his sufferings? Well, there's something about suffering for doing good that connects us to Jesus, almost a bragging right, if you will. Well, Paul certainly faced his fair share of suffering, but I, I think what Paul was also thinking back to a time when he was the one causing other righteous people to suffer and, and what Jesus told him in their first encounter. This is how Jesus and Paul first met. Jesus and Paul first met with Jesus coming up to Paul and saying, why are you persecuting me? Mm. Jesus also said that whatever we do to one of his whether it's good or bad, whatever we do to anyone, uh, anybody that belongs to him, we do unto him. So if we do bad, we're doing it unto him, you know? So we're causing, when we do some harm to another believer, we're causing Jesus, we're persecuting Jesus. We're, 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 we're attacking Jesus. And, and so when, when, when we suffer, we share in the suffering of Jesus because Jesus is, is sharing right there with us. And then Paul in the next two verses, 25 and 26 he speaks of his ministry role. And so how did he view his role to the church? Well, Paul had a job to proclaim that revelation of God that, that God was giving him uh, to help us all come to an understanding of what God wants us to understand. Remember, that's kind of going to be my shortened version of that. And he, he used the word mystery. What, what, what's going on with the mystery? So the mystery, uh, as, far, as far as the mystery was, basically really the, the understanding that that the Gentiles, in other words, those who would be considered the furthest away from him, can can by his grace be reconciled too. So if the furthest away from him can be reconciled, that means that people close to him can be reconciled as well. That Amen. means there's hope for people. And in verse 27, with this great purpose of God, like God wants to reveal his riches. What, what's going on there, Nick? So the big reveal here is that when Paul wrote it, it was that that the Gentiles too now have a place at the table of salvation. Uh, so, so if, if I'm understanding that correctly now, if God can even reconcile a Gentile to him, yeah, people who aren't known as his chosen people, if God can choose to save 
even them. Yeah. That now displays the vast, glorious riches and richness of that grace. Amen. And so, and, I mean, let's put it just, this way. If, if the Jews became enemies of God and they were supposed to be his chosen people, the Gentiles were the enemies, the enemy of enemies, so to speak, you know? And if he can save them, who can't he save? You might even argue, based upon how Paul usually talks about himself, that if God could even save him, mm -hmm. that that shows that, that God is so vastly rich with grace. I mean, any which way you cut it, no matter what bad situation you look at, there's always a, a salvation angle that God has. Mm. Whether it be Paul's life as a persecutor of the church, where he sees himself as the chief of sinners, or where he's talking about the Gentiles who are the people who were who was most hostile and pagan and alienated from God, as we've seen in, 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 in various epistles. It doesn't matter what, there's no situation that God can't save you from. Amen. I've talked with people who, who we have, we have the occasional baptism Sunday at our church and we give a, we have a gospel, gospel message. And, and if the Holy spirit is working within somebody, they're free to get up at the end of the service and go get some swimming trunks on, and we have things prepared for them. And I was talking with, with a woman I was journeying with, and she said she felt so unworthy when she went up there. And she said, well, everyone else might feel that they could be saved, but she felt so unworthy of being saved. And I shared with her, I said, I said, my friend, we're all unworthy. It's like at no point, it's like pastors, not pastors. We're None of us are worthy of being saved. And so we all uniquely display God's amazing, rich grace. Like, yes, that there's even none God, righteous. No, not that, one. In other words, there's none, none worthy. No, not we one. Can't earn it. I mean, this is, and so it was, and I remember her, she started to cry when she heard those words. I'm like, no, that's everybody's story. It's not just yep. yours. It was appropriate that you felt unworthy. But just remember, God considered you worthy. It's like God loved you. And that is because of God's love for you. And so, that's the richness of his grace that God chose you and God predestined you. All these great, comforting, hard theological words all yeah. end in the fact that it doesn't matter what your story is. God still can and yeah. God does. And I, I, I would even argue that if, if you've never felt unworthy of God's salvation, odds are you haven't tasted it. Yeah, you don't have that basic humility. Yeah. All right. So uh, Paul ends his time here in 28 and 29 with toiling. So what purpose, to what purpose did Paul toil? Well, to tell others about Jesus. Uh, he wants to lead people to the Lord and he wants to help those who are saved to learn and grow. That's why he talks about, you know, they get understanding and, and wisdom. And, and we do this all. And I like the way he ends it there, that we do this all because of Christ and we do it all by his power. So we do it for him and by him. Wow. Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. It's, I, I, it, it's comforting to know that even Paul saw God working within him. Mm -hmm. It's not like he was this finished product and he had it all figured out. No, we learned in Philippians that Paul's pressing forward. He's, he's pressing on towards a goal. And he, he's not, he hasn't yet attained it, he said. But he's still pressing on it. So now we hear him... And just a couple of New Testament chapters later, that God's still at work in him. Well, Colossians 1, Professor D, what are your closing thoughts? Well, here, here, here we go. I, I was going to say King Jesus, but I think, honestly, I, I'd rather say God Jesus. 
God the Son, God Jesus. Let's I'm just call Jesus what he is, God. He personally reconciled me. Him being God, he became a man. He to, to die for my sins because I couldn't die for my sins. He, he to pay the debt that I couldn't pay. So, so that I could be reconciled to, to him. Jesus, God became man. Where, where Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is about that ultimate vindication story. And it serves as a hope model for us. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is awesome, awesome because it demonstrates that God, Jesus, reconciled us. Wow. Right. And, and I appreciate you that you, you brought up the this big theological reality that we unpacked in 15 to 20. And that this is who Jesus is. This is what he accomplished. Now, yeah. I will, now, I will add to that. For those of us listening, take this great, gigantic four-verse sentence, five-verse maybe, 9, 10, 11, 12. So those, that one big theological sentence and for verses nine. So we've got your life now as a Christian filled with knowledge, just wisdom and understanding, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord in a manner that's pleasing to him, bearing fruit in your life, increasing in the things you should be increasing with, being strengthened in the way you should be strengthened with, and, and with joy and patience and endurance and giving thanksgiving. And, and look at that. That is the kind of life you need to live. That is the way, that is the attitude, that is the perspective. So now that you've been reconciled with Christ, Amen and amen. Now you have marching orders. This is now how you are to live. And so we rejoice in the great theology of, of 15 to 20. We celebrate 21 to 24. We celebrate what Christ and God the Father has done through God the Son and reconciled a wayward, sinful, hostile you back to holy him. Now, now walk in a manner that pleases God. So now that's what we can take from this. Now there's a way I'm supposed to live each day. And when I'm not living that way, I know I need to repent. And when and I now know how I can focus. You might even say HBO. I need to hear the word of the Lord. I need to believe the word of the Lord. I need to obey the word of the Lord. It's like, okay, there's things about me that need to be different. And I need to be progressing towards Jesus and away from me. That's what repentance is. I'm turning to him and from me. And the Holy Spirit's at work in you. What a great theology lesson tonight. This yeah. It's really hard to beat Colossians 1 for what it communicates. It's been an honor to journey with you tonight. Uh, and God bless you all. As always, this has been Masterclass Theology. I am I am Big Rev. And I am Professor D. You're Professor D. I almost said I was Professor D. Yeah, I kind of caught that. It's a dream of mine. But God bless you all, and we'll see you next time. Amen. Good night. That was This has been Masterclass Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode, and I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.